Welcome to a special episode of This Week in XR. I'm Charlie Fink. I'm here with Ted Shilowitz and author Matthew Ball, whose book, The Metaverse and How It Will Revolutionize Everything, uh, is coming out next week. I had a chance to read a review copy. Ted is holding up his. Matthew, welcome, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be back. Um, needless to say, I, as, as I said in my review, I read it twice. I even used two different color highlighters because just about every page is full of history and um, it's, it's science and I mean, how did you even research this? That's comical, Charlie, because I did the same thing. As I was going through the book, I'm like, oh, this is a good reference point for presentations. This is a good reference point for some yeah. meetings. It's rich. Um, oh, and by the way, Charlie, before we forget, mention our sponsors that make this possible. Oh, yes, I should. Thank you to Zapper and Verbella, as always, for sponsoring our show and making it possible. Um, but Matthew, let's get back to you in the book. I'm so excited. I have so many questions to ask you. But, but the first is, I mean, it must have been a Herculean, exhausting effort to do that much research. Yes, it, it definitely was. I mean, December of last year in particular, I think I was doing six and a half days a week of 14, 16 hours of writing. But in many ways, it was the culmination and harvesting of many prior years, reading, writing, learning from columns such as yours that allowed me to channel it. And I mean that quite sincerely. Like. The goal of this book was to provide a comprehensive yes. overview of different fields. I'm not a networking expert. I'm not a computing right. expert. I am sure. relaying and formalizing, trying mm -hmm. to do my best job distilling for a novice audience, my still somewhat amateur understanding that is drawn from many, many other experts. Well, one of, the fun, one of the fundamental insights of the book, of course, and, and this was my second book, which is this is not about the metaverse per se, as much it is, as it is being brought about by the convergence of a large number of technologies, you know, more or less simultaneously, right? When the piston engine was invented, nobody thought it was going to power airplanes. So I think that we're kind of seeing, right, the, the network capacity, the computing capacity, the sophistication of 3D building tools, all of these things sort of marching together toward this goal that uh, we are calling the metaverse. Well, and I think what's interesting to note is a lot of this seems like the natural evolution, just like we talk about the natural evolution of the internet as it stands today into what we refer to as the metaverse of the near tomorrow into really tomorrow. Um, but the same sort of path with your blog, right? Which became very popular and had a focus point around things around related to the metaverse. Charlie and I would recommend it constantly. When people would ask me at the company I work for it now, what's called Paramount Global, I would point to you first. I would say- MatthewBall.vc. Right, go read Matthew Ball's blog and you will get a good primer on what we're talking about. Rather than me trying to spend 45 minutes giving it to you on your own time, in your own moment, go read it. And I still recommend it to this, to this day because there's a lot of really good. I, I had that moment when I first read that blog, I was like, oh my God, I wish I had written this. This is so good. <laughs> yeah. And the <laughs> and book is I, a natural extension of that. You sort yeah. of, you yeah, pull so on the good. threads into chapter after chapter around all these different touch points. And, and I'd be interested in your comment on this because I refer to a lot of the reference point around this other book that I liked that goes deep dive into the gaming industry called Console Wars. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of sort of similarities to the way your attempt 
to kind of wrap a bow around all of this in a way that can be understood as to what the real impact is and how many players and all the different opportunities that are out there is very similar to what console wars did so it's like oh wow i didn't know all this was underneath the covers and you did that a really nice job of exposing all that well, well thank you i think you've really encapsulated something important here i mean we always come up with a label or a product or an application that we use to embody something really dramatic that has happened. I talk a lot about the iPhone. The iPhone really was the killer app of the last 20 years, but it's because it brought together myriad different innovations that made it possible. The second thing is to recognize that what makes all technological eras magical is their recursion. Someone creates something incredible that leads to or unearths a behavior that we didn't previously know or suspect. Entrepreneurs then respond to it, producing technology for it. And that plays out geometrically in ways that are hard to predict. And that is what produces change. And the third thing is recognizing that much of this is an echo. It's an echo of antecedent technological eras of prior efforts, be that Second Life or VR seven years ago, or the efforts to build these worlds 20 years earlier. And so I tried to do this job to say, let's take a look at everything in the macro context. Fortnite doesn't just work. Facebook doesn't just work. And in fact, when we think of something revolutionary, we have to understand all that's around it. And when we understand all that's around it, why it is the way it is, both due to technical limitations and societal ones, we can start to look at what the future might entail. This is Ted, this is, he's singing your, Matthew's singing your tune because Ted likes to say that all futurists are really just pastists. Pastists, right, right. <laughs> so as I read through chapter and chapter of the book, there's all these reference points that I give the same reference points. I talk about the iPhone as this kind of Rosetta Stone moment where people realize you now have this always on internet device that actually makes sense, that mm -hmm. actually I'll use it and I'll start to see where it'll blossom. And you, you cover that really well. It's really, really interesting. Um, there, there's also kind of an interesting touch point around how you make a really good case of explaining how the way the internet exists today, even with the levels of sophistication we've had over the last, call it 10 years, is still not really suitable to bring what the utopian version of the metaverse actually is to fruition. There's latency problems, there's you know, packet issues, there's all this kind of underlying tech that you said you had to do a lot of research on, but you do a really nice job of explaining why in many ways the infrastructure that we have created is wholly improper to accomplish the metaverse. Because, because it's a, it was created for an asynchronous environment. Correct. No one uh, anticipated, and I think this is laid out beautifully in the book, no one really anticipated that they were building a, a real-time network that should have unlimited uh, simultaneity. Right. I also totally. Yeah. I mean, this, what the three of us are doing right now was not a practical use case for anyone to optimize for. That's not because the pioneers of the internet didn't want to do what we're doing right now. It's that you, there are limits to how far in advance you try to future-proof your tech. And what they primarily tried to do was entirely different from this. It was not the three of us, it was the two of us. I would send something to Charlie and it was static. Why was it static? Because there was no way for us to collaborate in real time. And so you have copying of files, you have different destinations, asynchronous. You don't need a consistent connection between two points. That's why 
there's this remarkable weirdness to the fact that two people in a video call remains remarkably unreliable, even though we have global video networks like YouTube reaching two to three billion people a day nearly seamlessly. And that's because the internet was developed for that. It mm -hmm. doesn't work well for this. Yeah. So uh, I wanted to talk about, as I said in, in the email when we were setting up this call, I wanted to talk about what I would call the foundational metaphor of the book. And actually Ray ba Bradbury used to talk about this, right? All stories are metaphors. Mm -hmm. So you have this beautiful metaphor in the book that keeps recurring about a tree falling in a forest, but it is not just a tree in the metaverse. It has to be constructed out of bits uh, and it has to be reconstructed every time a new person walks by. Mm -hmm. So the scale required to mimic this very simple thing in the physical world, um, you know, really makes us understand how difficult it is and how much computing is required to do something even that simple. Right. And so this is where I get really excited because everyone can understand this basic idea. It's in the name Second Life, right? It's a parallel plane of existence. And pulling that off requires us to think technically about things that we never consider in the real world. Synchronous. We never say, are we all in the same version of the world at the same time? <laughs> Persistence. No one worries if they write their name in a tree, whether or not it will still be there 50 years later. How many people the world's physics can manage is not a consideration. But what you're talking about with the tree is also this question of the tree exists irrespective of the observer. And if five people are observing it, it's just that one version of the tree. And so when you start thinking about the metaverse, you have to contend with these philosophical considerations, synchronous, live, shared, persistent, that actually need to be processed. You start to realize there's no single point of truth. There's only rendered and processed truth. And that's where you start to realize things like why VR glasses or AR glasses and VR hardware is so challenging because what we require them to do is not just extraordinary, it's literally what the universe has to do. Yeah. It's a digital twin, right? It's we're 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 using bits and 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 replacing them. What we did with atoms, we now replace with bits, and yeah, we yeah. refer to all this newfangled technology in a way that it should just all just work. But in the real world, things don't just work. It requires engineering to make them work, and massive amounts of engineering to make virtual reality and mixed reality work in a way that feels like it's actually happening to you, because it becomes mirrored sensibility. Matthew introduced me to a great word in the book that in all my years I've never seen called skeuomorphism. Right. <laughs> and Ted, have you heard this word before? No, I had not. not skeuomorph skeuomorphism basically means, and Matthew, well, I'll let Matthew explain yeah, it. Yeah, explain it. Yeah. Well, so, so let me do this by giving the optimistic response to perceived bearishness about virtual reality. Okay. Which is people look at some of these demos and say, Wait, you're telling me the metaverse and VR hardware is so that I can go into a simulated boardroom instead of a real one? That sounds terrible. Why would I want to do that? You want me to spend $500 on a headset to do that? And that's because we're thinking skeuomorphically. And what skeuomorphism refers to is basically design principles around that replicate real things. Now, we do that 
part reactively because we think it's easier mentally for us to adapt to something new by representing it to something old. Mm. But over time, we realize that that limits us more than it enables us. The classic example is the early versions of iOS. Steve Jobs, a brilliant engineer, an interface designer and savant. And yet, if you recall the Notes app on iOS 1234, it was yellow with red lined paper. Why? Yeah. Because that's what a notebook looked like. Yeah. The diary or calendar had stitching. Why on earth would you pretend to have sewn a digital calendar? The game center was a blackjack table with green felt. Now, eventually, iOS revamped all of that. It doesn't look like that because it need not. And so the simple optimistic perspective is, you're right, a 3D boardroom doesn't look interesting. Over time, we will realize that and we will design native experiences to it. And more likely, the purpose of sitting around any 3D thing in an immersive headset is not so that it replicates the office, it's to facilitate the work that we're there to discuss. So does, does skeuomorphism refer to, because you make an interesting point, right? And the it's not really a counterpoint, but the other part of that equation is there seems to always be a logic of finding comfort zones, right? Making people right. comfortable with technology by allowing them to understand that it feels like something they used someplace else, typically in the real world. So email still to this day has kind of the concept of mail, right? You add Do you remember Apple World? It was a precursor to AOL. And uh, it was an online service that Apple started. They, they were licensing some technology from AOL. This is, I'm gonna say in 1993. Okay. Uh, and, and the interface was a town. Right. And there were there was a post office for your mail. Yeah. Right. Totally. There was an arcade where you could go play games. Well, right? we there was a library where you would go get published things so still that people would day. know what what was there. Right. Look, still there's to this a better day, Charlie, in 2022, we still use the trash can to throw <laughs> our garbage away on the computer still yeah. to this exactly. day. Well, look, the one that the one that remains funny, and, and it's actually a good example of how difficult it is for us to shed things. Is a phone number makes zero sense. Right. <laughs> right. There's no purpose to it. I mean, that's why my first cell phone, I had long distance charges when I took my mobile phone out of the local area code. We don't care about area codes anymore. That's one of the reasons why we have to put them in all the time, ironically. Mm-hmm. But we're just stuck to those systems. And sometimes that's because they're too hard to shed. Other times we think that they're important for continuity. But of course, we always see these lines where you know, children today don't see the floppy disk. They think that that's a save icon. Right, right. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that because way back when I was giving early, early presentations about the beginnings of virtual reality, I'd make this kind of comical reference point about if you ended up in prison tonight and they took your smartphone away, who would you call? Who number, you know, do you remember? <laughs> exactly. Get your yeah. one phone call. Well, maybe you remember your number from when you were a kid growing up, but you don't like, I don't know Charlie's phone number by heart. I don't no, know I'm just calling my own cell phone that you just took right. away. That's <laughs> it. I'll tell so myself. That's the purpose I guess. That's fascinating. It's very, so really Matthew, in the book, you quote um, Tim Sweeney probably more, I think, than any other individual. Clearly, he it's had the a very, top citation. Yeah, yeah, his Twitter account. Yeah, he, I mean, he obviously has influenced your thinking. Um, and I, I wanted you to comment on something that you call Sweeney's Law. So you, you've put it, put it up there with network effects and um, 
you know, the, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the doubling of uh, computing yeah, power. Law, Metcalf's yeah, law. Exactly. So tell us what Sweeney's law is. Oh, let's see. Let's see how badly I'm going to butcher this. He says efforts to place processing on the wrong side of the latency wall are doomed to fail because while networks are improving, local processors are improving faster. And he is in some regard ruminating on the old Sun Microsystems adage that the network is the computer. And so if we think of the network as performing computation, there's a question of what do you compute where? And what he's referring to is essentially the tension between local processing, local rendering for a game and doing that in the cloud. When you do it in the cloud, you're doing that in an industrial data center. It's always going to have more performance especially per dollar than what's in your device. It has to be affordable, it has to be portable, it has to fit well. And so that's where you get to the argument of computing or cloud computing, cloud game streaming. Tim argues that yes, there are advantages there. The problem is the network in between that data mm -hmm. center and you. Right. And that is typically not performant enough and crucially, out of the control of the user, the developer, and the data center. And so his argument is, you're doomed to fail if you focus on processing in the data center, because yes, networks are getting faster, better, more reliable, lower latency, but their rate of improvement falls far short of that in the pocket device. And that is because of Moore's law. Yeah, you go, you go pretty deep dive in the book where you actually talk about millisecond latencies. In multiple chapters, you're referring to the, the flaws within this concept of how we make the metaverse real is when you're talking about a global society trying to move data around through these data centers, it's perfect for non-synchronous situations when it feels like it's real and it's all connected because it's moving asynchronously. But when we actually try and connect things together, the latency between the East Coast and the West Coast of the United States or the latency between the East Coast of the United States and Japan, for example, is still massively long, even though it's in the microseconds, to actually make these things real and make it feel real. Yeah, and a lot of this actually relates to two different things. On one end, it's the speed of light. Uh, and that's the physical limitation. The other is us, humans. And this is part of the problem with virtual reality. It's where you get into the inner ear problem when you come to nausea, which is what we require experientially. The challenge with latency is, look, if it's too long, then the experience doesn't work. But even in minuscule, so we are within the realm of tolerance, you're trying to have agency. Your brain is trying to affect something. And your brain is not super tolerant for disconnection because it feels like it doesn't have agency. The classic example that I use is, it takes about 200 to 250 milliseconds after you press a button, a soft button, before you think that you didn't press it. So you hit play on Spotify, after 200 milliseconds, you'll hit it press again it. because you don't think that you hit it the first time. Mm -hmm. But when you're in a gaming environment, really after about 110 milliseconds, amateurs brains start to think that they're no longer controlling what they're mm. supposed to be controlling and when you get trained so that you have muscle memory professionals start to get 
rejection around the 30 to 50 millisecond mark. And that's because your brain has not physical muscle memory to the analog stick, but associative connection. And fighting against the laws of physics, as well as the laws of how we work, that's a tension here. So this is, a, in a way, why cloud uh, rendering um, is going to be an issue. Because even if you can do real-time cloud rendering, you still have to get it to the end user. And it's through the network rather than having it produced locally on your hard drive. Right. Now, the answer is always, what do you perform where, when, why, and how? And sometimes the answer will be, worse performance at a fraction of the cost that makes available capabilities that wouldn't otherwise be accessible. And by that, I mean, there are certain people who are never going to afford certain hardware in certain countries where it's not going to be practical. But even when you take a look at Roblox or Fortnite, a lot of the data is being cloud streamed. Some of the experience is being cloud rendered. It's a question of hybridization. And the hope is over time, we get better and better and we can shift more to the cloud. But like all things, it's about what are you doing, where and when. When you do when you use Siri, Siri tends to be much faster than Google Assistant, but it's also worse. And one of the reasons for that is Siri loads a lot more of its processing on the local device so that it can answer any query that it can. And what that means is if it knows the answer to Ted's question, it's just gonna answer it. Google will send out that information far to a data center or a sophisticated question. Now the time is greater. It has to go somewhere else and it has to come back. And wireless networks are much, much lower than fixed line ones. But it's a question of when, why, and how. Right. That is how we should think about processing and logic. So it's a question of the appropriate technology in the appropriate place. And I tend to agree, I think you do too, with Tim Sweeney, that there is a right time and place for grid and cloud computing and a right use case for assets that need to be loaded offline and online. but local use case, especially when it comes to gaming, which the, the book is largely focused on how gaming and gaming culture starts to permeate into every other part of the metaverse. It has become the alpha case to prove all this out. And Tim's sort of stance on it is there's absolutely use cases for things that are off-prem, but if we forget how important on-prem is for that instantaneous feel, like I'm really connected to that person in a gaming world or a social world, we're actually never going to get there. Right? Is, that, is that a good way to state it? Right, right. And this comes to why I spend so long in the book. And Charlie, I really appreciated your enjoyment of that section while recognizing one of the reasons why you also observe that it's going to be hard for some people, which is... It's a lot of information all at once. Network infrastructure yeah. stuff is pretty hard. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot of information. Yeah. But, but I think my job is... It's easy to talk about the fantastical future, but we often see these examples in VR and AR. Look, in 2015, Mark said that by the end of the decade, we'd replace our smartphones with wearables. That time has come and passed, and now we're looking at 2526 as the first consumer edition of his hardware. We have to understand the practical limitations and timelines. And the brilliant thing about the gaming industry, and the reason why they're at the forefront, is they've been fighting these battles for mm -hmm. decades. They're so good at it. And they're Most great the at building stuff. 3D virtual worlds, which was another insight totally. in your book. And so they have all these lessons of like, you know, the, the old phrase that the, the best technology is indistinguishable from magic. 
What's mm-hmm. magic is what game developers pull off mm-hmm. that just shouldn't be possible. Right. And so we have to understand what isn't possible and why, so that we can both be practical about what we can build, but also know what we have to achieve. So okay. we got two minutes, wait, 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 we got two minutes left, because you said you had a hard stop at 1230, and, and I want to respect that, because clearly Ted and I could go, go on, on with you for three hours. Well, we'll, we'll do another one of these, but yeah. <laughs> So, so I don't think we're even scratching the surface, but I feel like we buried the lead a little bit and everybody at home uh, is thinking, okay, this is a great conversation, but what is the metaverse? So I don't want you to necessarily read from the book, but you must get this question a hundred times a day. So give us, give us the answer to the ultimate question here. So look, the simplest way to think about it would be a virtual and parallel plane of existence. The more sophisticated way to think about it would be to say a 3D version of the internet. Why do I say that? The internet spans 40,000 different networks, millions of different domain registrars, tens of millions of servers, 25 billion devices, nearly 200 countries, and 7 billion people. And we can all coherently, consistently, comprehensively, reliably exchange information. But that information, though resilient, powerful, and underpinning the entire global economy is incredible, it can't do that in 2D. And that's an impediment to augmented reality, to virtual reality, to many different use cases and intuitive ways of interaction. When we think about the metaverse, it's often described as a successor state to the internet because we need fundamental changes to it. New protocols, new file formats, new technologies, often new infrastructure. And so, We should think of it like the relationship of the mobile internet to the original internet. It's not altogether dissimilar. We're still running on most of the same protocols. We're still transmitting a lot of data over fixed line infrastructure. We haven't deprecated old devices. We use newer versions of them, but it's an enhancement for new functions, new use cases. In this instance, a 3D network. So is it fair to say it's sort of the internet will become increasingly 3D and we will navigate it through our browsers much like people navigate through games today. I think we will navigate it as we do the internet at large today through myriad different devices. Some won't even have a screen. Hmm. We use an Alexa device. We sometimes use Siri to our phone, even though it has a visual interface. VR and AR will play important roles, but so will sensors, which capture Mm -hmm. us and reproduce us in a digital twin unknowingly. Oh boy, that's another can of whoop-ass that we did not open on this show. Uh, But needless to say, the metaverse will contain a digital twin of the physical world. And, um, you know, the opportunities creatively and economically from something like that are really so big, it's hard to comprehend. Uh, As is the entirety of your book, which touches on that and just about everything else having to do with the history of computing. it, it, it is so rich. I highly recommend it. It is truly a joy to find it all in one place and laid out with such tremendous insight and solid logic. So thank you for that, Mike, Matthew. Thank you for coming on the show and spending a little time with Ted and I. And um, I, I hope the book's a big bestseller. How can people buy it? Well, first of all, thank you for your time. Thank you for reading it. I really appreciate it. There's nothing that feels better than to be read by experts who deeply contemplate the works. The book comes out on July 19th. It can be purchased on Amazon, on Apple, Barnes and Noble, most indie booksellers as well. 
And right. Charlie, before we before yes, we go, can I yes. do one more thing that will be a little tease to make people really want to buy this book? Um, it's a little micro spoiler because I'm going to tell one thing that I learned when I was reading this that was fascinating to me and maybe elaborate on it for 30 seconds and then let them go buy the book. Um, you talk about Roblox a lot in the book and you make this really interesting reference point about the dollars that Roblox returns into R&D that are exponentially mm. more yes. than all other companies in the sector and in the space. And I thought that was a really remarkable insight that you were able to glean out of and why Roblox has become this sort of lightning rod for a meta galaxy, as you refer to, one of the places that is the beginnings of the metaverse. And you pulled that thread. There's lots of threads like this in the book, which is why Charlie and I recommend that you read it. But as you kind of wrap up, I think just as opposed to our normal ending where we say, where do you get the book? And we say, I'm going to let you tease out why people should read this book through that lens, if, if you so desire. Yeah, so, so one of the things that's so fun is, look, we're talking about network effects, compounding value from the number of participants. The theory of the metaverse is not just 3D simulation, it is 3D interconnection and networks. And in Roblox, we're seeing the example of what happens when you have tens of millions of worlds, tens of millions of different creators. They essentially sit as a form of shared R&D. We're not thinking of it as BioWare's R&D or Respawn's R&D. We're thinking of it as a pool of R&D. That tends to be how great things are built. Mm. Decentralized creation of wide networks of contributors mm -hmm. and individuals all collaboratively building, in this case, the metaverse. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. We didn't even talk about the creator economy, which you spent so much great time on in the book. So everybody read Matthew Ball's The Metaverse and how it will revolutionize everything. We'll see you on Friday for our regular show. And Matthew, we will see you again soon. Good luck with Thank you. Thank you. See you guys later. Time.